0: Say Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Big things have been happening at the Supreme Court this week, so we're going to spend all of our time today talking about the key developments. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by a pair of senior patent reporters, Ryan Davis and Matt Boltman, to break down two intellectual property decisions that will have a big impact on how patents can be challenged. But first, I'd like to say hello to my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey! No Bill Donahue today.
1: No Bill. Uh, he's out. And, uh, you know, we we have a lot to talk about, as you said, so we can get to it. But I just want to say, you know, he's not he's not here to speak for himself. And so it would be a real shame. It would be a real shame, Amber, and specifically producer Kelly. It would be a real shame if some audio of Bill singing good by Better Than Ezra from his karaoke birthday party a few weeks ago were to surface.
0: Do, do, we, do we have this audio? I'm
1: just saying... I don't know if we have it. I'm just saying it would be a real shame. Don't
0: tease me, Alex Lawson. It would be
1: a real shame if it popped up. And and furthermore, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to him. Uh, And that's all I'm going to say about it.
0: Um, I'm desperate to hear this, first of all. But I also want to point out you may be gone in the future as well. You may be setting a precedent here.
1: I, you know, I mean, I'm I'm able to, or I I, I stand ready to to uh, face any criticisms that are lobbed, <laughs> or not even criticisms. I don't know when I'm here or not here. It's totally right. fine. But we're not here to deal with hypotheticals about what happens when I'm here or not here. We got plenty of news to talk about, uh, and the first deals with uh, an issue that you are intimately familiar with, the uh, president's travel Alex. ban.
0: You know there are two things I love talking about the most on this podcast. Yeah, one is the Supreme Court, sure, and the other one is immigration policy. That's right. So this was a big week for me, colliding
1: in grand fashion. Yeah. Here.
0: So on Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard much-anticipated oral arguments about President Trump's third travel ban. Yeah, we've talked about this a bit on the podcast before. I think most people are generally following. Let's along. do
1: just a real quick primer. I mean, like 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 you say, it went through many iterations and all this other it kind did. of stuff. What are they? What are they looking at right here's now at the, the high court?
0: Here's the super shorthand version. Okay, President Trump about a year ago, a uh, little more than a year ago, yeah. issued a first travel ban. It sparked all of this uproar around the country. It was struck down. Then he had a second one, also struck down. Now we're up to the third one, and that's what's at the high court now. Um, There's a group of states and many, many amicus filings to go along with them, saying that this was essentially a Muslim ban that violates the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. So this is a pretty serious case.
1: Okay, And it was like you say, it drew a lot of eyeballs, heavily politicized issue. But now it's um, squarely a legal issue. We are before the high court. People are making arguments. Uh, What were those arguments like this week?
0: It was crazy. There's great audio and we're going to play some clips later, but I would recommend anybody just listen to the whole thing. It was fascinating. The justices overall seem pretty skeptical of the state of Hawaii that's challenging the ban Mm -hmm. um, because they seem to lean into this idea that the president has really wide latitude when it comes to national security issues. And that's what this ban was ostensibly for it okay. was supposed to protect the country. Yeah, uh, but there were tough questions and weird things all around for this one. There's plenty to break down.
1: Yeah, yeah, and like you know, I'm I'm always curious to see exactly how the justices go at a specific issue, especially something like this. So, what do we got in that regard?
0: I'd love to give everyone listening some flavor of what we had. Yeah. It was a wide-ranging argument, but. Justice Kagan really kicked off something I thought was super interesting with a hypothetical. They often do hypotheticals. Right. But this one was what would happen if there was a president who was a vehement anti Semite? Nice. Who said really terrible things about Jews and then asked his cabinet to figure out recommendations for how to issue a travel ban for Israel.
1: Wow. What would happen? Uh, yeah, what would happen? Uh, and what did uh, what did the various litigants uh, have to say? Well,
0: she was basically getting at how much deference do you give a president if he said really bad stuff? Yeah. Um, and Noel Francisco, who's the Solicitor General, right. he responded to this. He parried this pretty well. He said that the if the cabinet actually assesses that there is a security risk, then it doesn't matter if the president ha- in his heart of hearts has this malice or animus for a certain group because the cabinet's a body that would assess all of this and and tell the president what to do yeah
1: i mean he's giving he's giving sort of a lot of credence to the weight of the cabinet there but uh he
0: he is and he even said things like and this is what i thought was so interesting he said if the cabinet's asked to do something unconstitutional like rubber stamp a ban that has no national security purpose then the cabinet is quote duty bound to protect and defend the constitution So that means they would have to refuse to comply or they would have to resign.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's like like you say, they always love trotting out hypotheticals. But the questions about the actual policy were interesting as well. Uh, Let's let's get into some of that.
0: Yeah. So one of the things for anybody who's been following this case, uh, what many people remember is Trump repeatedly on the campaign trail calling for a a quote unquote Muslim ban. Yeah. Yeah. So that featured prominently in these arguments.
1: That specific phraseology is like crucial here. It did.
0: And all of the tweets and campaign speeches that have reinforced that general idea that this was meant to keep Muslims out of the US. Mm -hmm. So here's what Francisco had to say about
2: that. The first is whether you can ever consider things like campaign statements. And we are very much of the view that campaign statements are made by a private citizen before he takes the oath of office and before under the opinions clause of the Constitution receives the advice of his cabinet. And that those are constitutionally significant acts that mark the fundamental transformation from being a private citizen to the embodiment of the executive branch. So that those statements should be out of bounds. Suppose but you for- have
0: a local mayor. So what you can hear from that answer is basically the government arguing that whatever Trump said before he became president yeah. doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, that's it. it. That's interesting. I mean, he's they're they're kind of saying that the very act of. Running for president and then taking the oath is sort of like a transformative.
0: They did, and they process. used that kind of language. They said it was transformative. Francisco said that repeatedly. There was another later hypothetical about what if someone ran for mayor, said terrible yeah, things it's... two days later after they're elected, <laughs> did exactly what they said, and he stuck by it. That That's interesting. Yeah, transformative. It kind of
1: reminds me of the in the Gawker trial when Hulk Hogan said that Hulk Hogan and uh, and and his actual per, and his actual like person, Terry Bollea, were different people. Right. So exciting in different times. This is sort of a more temporal thing. Well,
0: once we sort of had that initial answer of the act of becoming president transforms a candidate. Yeah. Then the government went on to argue that even though it's been called a Muslim ban, it's not that. Okay. And here's what they said.
2: The proclamation itself. This is not a so-called Muslim ban. If it were, it would be the most ineffective Muslim ban that one could possibly imagine, since not only does it exclude the vast majority of the Muslim world, it also omits three Muslim-majority countries that were covered by past orders, including Iraq, Chad, and Sudan. And so this order is what it purports to be.
0: I found that exchange very interesting because he's basically saying like, all right, so even if we did have a president who wanted a Muslim ban, they did a really crappy job of it. It's not a good Muslim
1: ban. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, and he also, not to get too in the weeds about the different iterations the ban went through, but he referenced like changes they made from earlier versions of the ban, which is very interesting. Yeah,
0: so, I mean, there was a lot of argument here about how um, the president has this broad authority to enact policies to protect the U.S. and the cabinet agencies vetted particularly this third ban. Yeah. And so the statements and the motive shouldn't matter because yeah, yeah. it went through the proper channels is their argument.
1: Well, this is, like you say, this is an argument, so the other side had a say in it. What were the states, um, what were they faced with this kind of stuff from, from the government? What well, kind of rejoinders were they making? They
0: agreed with none of this, as yeah, you right. would imagine. So Neil Katyal, who was the counsel for the state of Hawaii, mm-hmm. he said to the justices that, Through the Immigration and Nationality Act, Congress has been the one who has weighed in on these same issues, and they've expressly rejected the idea of a nationality-based ban. Instead, Congress has come up with, in that law, a system where you vet people and create incentives for countries that aren't cooperating as much as you want them to with that vetting process. So he basically said, the president shouldn't be able to usurp what... Congress has clearly thought through and weighed Mm -hmm. out all the various iterations. We did
1: this with a scalpel. You're doing it with a sledgehammer. Basically. And so...
0: The crux of the argument is that he said this whole thing was too broad. So here's what he said about that.
1: Our statutory point to you is that if you accept this order, you're giving the president a power. No president in 100 years has exercised an executive proclamation that countermands Congress's policy judgments. He has zero examples to say that when Congress has stepped into the space and solved the exact problem, that the president can then come in and say, no, I want a different solution if you do that you it's not just family preferences that you
0: so this was just an argument that you can't just supplant what Congress decided the mm-hmm. president does have broad power but he shouldn't be able to come in to a co-equal branch and say never mind I want a different solution to this problem
3: okay
1: now with the with the arguments uh, behind us I mean the only thing left is the decision <laughs> so yeah. I mean what is what, what is uh, I mean, I don't well, know if you want to like interpret what you what you what we've all heard or anything. But.
0: Everybody who ever comes on this show is smart enough to say that it's a it's bad to guess what the Supreme Court's gonna do. It's yeah. really tough. But I'll say a few things. Uh, because I'm a fool who will guess. Sure. Uh the first thing I'll say is we're definitely not gonna get this till the end of the term. Yeah. I think everyone's expecting this at the and, very end at the end of June. End of June, yeah. So we'll be waiting on that. But it did seem like the questions for the stateside Hawaii that's challenging the ban seemed a little tougher it seemed like there was um, a lot of deference in the room to the mm-hmm. idea that national security is very important and something we shouldn't necessarily second guess so i think it may be an uphill climb to get this travel ban struck down
1: all right well we are all on pins and needles for that one um, and we've got a lot of uh high court uh, stuff to talk about on the show you just talked of course about probably the highest profile case yes. on the docket this term and later on, we're going to be talking in uh, in detail with Matt and Ryan about a couple of patent rulings. Um, but I wanted to just give us a few minutes on... Uh, a weird sort of intellectual debate between the justices that came up in one of those very patent cases that we're going to talk about, and it it involved sort of this this showdown between the newest justice uh, Neil Gorsuch and Stephen Breyer. And, well, I'm
0: I'm interested already.
1: Yeah, and they had um, it's not exactly like what you call a news item, but they had a very interesting kind of tete a tete. Um, over uh, the very controversial Chevron deference, um, which okay, yeah. a
0: ner- nerd alarm bells well, are yeah. ringing okay, well right that, now. I,
1: I should have said that at the beginning, but <laughs> yes, this is extremely nerdy, but it's very interesting. I think in a in, a, in like a sort of like live debate within the within right. the opinions kind of thing.
0: All right, so. People might not remember Chevron Deference. What is that exactly?
1: Well, the first thing you need to know about it is that, I mean, it, it's very name sounds like nerdy as hell, like you just said. Like I It's love the it. Chevron Deference. <laughs> I'm sure there's like some, I'm sure there's many like bands that never got anywhere named Chevron Deference. Um,
0: <laughs> the best ones.
1: Yeah. The first thing you need to know is that it pops up all the time. It is freaking everywhere. Anytime someone challenges... Uh, the administration's sort of execution of a law. Um, And what it boils down to, it's basically a judicial test that deals with how the executive branch should interpret a law given to it by Congress after it's passed. And it reaches back to this famous 1984 case that was, of course, between the oil oil company Chevron and the National Resources Defense Council. And basically where the court came down was saying um, the courts should always defer, that's where we get that that term, they should defer to the executive branch uh, to the executive branch's interpretation of an ambiguous statute that Congress passed if that interpretation seems, reasonable now those two terms ambiguous and reasonable are like that's where the fights are those are key terms here and there are all kinds of like different tests for like when something is ambiguous and when something is reasonable But that's not important all you need to know it like i say it pops up all the time when people are challenging regulations and rulemaking a company says hey this is not what Congress meant when it passed this law, executive branch. You're not doing this right. And very often the administration, whatever administration is in power, responds, well, it wasn't really clear what Congress right. meant. We did our best to fill that gap. That's always, that, that always pops yep. up here, too. Fill the statutory gap. We did our best. And in that case, the Chevron deference generally says you should side with the administration, the executive
0: branch. OK, so we had a little squabble about this in court. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the people involved was Neil Gorsuch. What does he think of Chevron deference?
1: Well, I mean, it basically popped up in every single profile written when Gorsuch was rumored to be a favorite for the Supreme Court seat. And then, of course, when he was actually tapped for it. Like many conservative thinkers, he hates the Chevron deference. The the, the argument basically goes that, like, uh, the courts are basically abdicating their power to, um, you know, review and interpret laws uh, to the executive branch. It basically says, you know... uh, you're giving sort of carte blanche to the executive branch to just kind of like fill in gaps and like do what it wants if laws are kind of sloppily written. And he's never been um really secretive about that. He gives he's given speeches on it and doing all that stuff, and it popped up again. He even sort of flirted with the idea of uh maybe doing away with it in some future case, but he kinda just eventually went back to his old sort of criticisms.
0: Okay. So Gorsuch hates Chevron Deference. Yeah. But He got some pushback.
1: Yeah, this was and this was the first time this week. um, Like I say, it's not news that he hates Chevron deference, but he got pushback from one of the courts, uh, you know, sort of reliably liberal voices, Stephen Breyer. And uh, Breyer, in a dissent uh, in one of these patent cases, again, that we're going to talk about later, um, he basically said, um, you know, like. Gorsuch, what you're doing here is you're painting the deference in terms that aren't really fair. Like, it's not carte blanche, like you say. He says, like, it's sort of like a rule of thumb. And actually, there's a quote here from it. That's good. Uh, This is a quote from Breyer. I understand Chevron as a rule of thumb, guiding courts in an effort to respect that leeway which Congress intended the agencies to have. So you can see what he's saying here. It's not like we do have a role to play in interpreting laws that you know the administration right it's not
0: just passing the buck entirely to the executive
1: branch. Yeah. Then he did something a little strange though that 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 clearly struck a chord with Gorsuch. He said and when courts are presented with amb- ambiguities like this they should consider what and this is a quote a hypothetical reasonable legislator. That's that's the quote that he used. would have done when confronted with this legal question. And you can see like Gorsuch clearly read the dissent before he finished his own opinion because he he is almost responding directly to that. He says this is a good quote from Gorsuch. Policy considerations cannot create an ambiguity when the words on the page are clear. Neither may we defer to an agency officials preferences because we imagine some hypothetical reasonable legislator would have favored that approach. Our duty is to give effect to the text that 535 actual legislators plus one president have enacted into law.
0: OK, this is as close to a smackdown between the justices it's pretty, as we ever I get. I mean, it's, right? it, by
1: these nerdy terms, it's pretty interesting. Um, and like I say, uh, the big sort of takeaway here, again, these, these judges' views on this particular bit of administrative law were well-established. But it's pretty interesting to see them, you know, with this— Basically, pugilism going on right. in the uh, in these like otherwise wonky patent cases, and Chevron always gets really interesting, gets a lot of people riled up because it's at the very intersection of the three branches of government, it right? Is. Like, so and con- it
0: comes up so frequently. Congress
1: writes this, uh, the administration has to implement it. Uh, maybe it didn't go so smoothly, and then it's like, well, where? What is the role of the courts? Uh, it'll like like you say, it'll probably pop up again if it should arise to the Supreme Court. I think we know where these two are going to go. Uh, but uh, as far as it goes, uh, it just kind of stands as an interesting intellectual exchange.
0: The U.S. Supreme Court issued two big patent rulings this week. The court upheld as constitutional a system for challenging patents that's been around for about five years. But the court found the Patent Trial and Appeal Board has to decide the validity of every challenged part of the patent when it conducts those reviews. Here to break down what this all means are two senior patent reporters, Ryan Davis and Matt Boltman. Welcome, guys.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: So my whole team is yeah, on the I show mean, today. I'm,
1: I'm sure many of the other legal news podcasts will be discussing this with a single patent expert or reporter. Yeah, but we uh, have yeah. Here you get two. two. That's the pro se difference. So yeah. I'm glad you guys are here. To...
0: So I want to get everybody situated because everyone listening isn't a patent attorney. So Ryan, could you break down for us, what is the patent trial and appeal board and what does it do?
3: So it's a part of the patent office itself that's uh, tasked. With reviewing uh, whether whether the patents that the office has issued are in fact valid, and it seems like a kind of an odd thing that the office would have another arm <laughs> doing that, <laughs> right? Yeah. You kind know, of the function of the patent office as right. it exists. Should they have been doing it right the first time? But there have been, you know, uh, I looked it up earlier, and there were eighty three hundred petitions challenging patents since the system went into effect. So there, and that definitely- was when. That, uh, the first ones were in 2012.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: Um, so there are clearly a lot of people that want to uh, raise this argument that the patent office uh, uh, issued patents uh, mistakenly. And the office, more often than not, when it gets to a final decision, has agreed with them.
0: Uh, and so why did we even need this? Couldn't that just be done in court?
3: Um, yeah, it, it can be done in court. But the only way it can be done in court is if... Uh, you're sued for infringement of the patent first. Then the person, that, uh, the company that sued for infringement, can say as a defense to the to the lawsuit that uh, this patent is invalid. Yeah. Um, so this is a way to do it outside of court. Right. So the it's idea is less confrontational in nature, and it could be like, yeah. is it faster. Or... It's supposed to be faster.
1: <laughs> I don't know that it. Much well, like a gov- any government operation.
0: <laughs> well, the, but the... that was the notion that right. it would be faster okay. and it'd give people a way to look at this again.
3: Right. Okay. So, so there's a there's a they have to be done in one year. Um, so that's. And patent sure, cases
1: yeah. can often yeah. get, go much longer than that. Well, anyway, okay, so that's what the PTAB is. And what we have you on here today is to talk about this case. And this case was brought by a company called Oil States Energy Sources. So, what were they arguing about the PTAB? What are we doing at the Supreme Court? lay it all down for us.
3: So oil states had one of their patents, uh, I think on oil drill oil drilling equipment, yeah. uh, found invalid in one of these proceedings. And they went to the Supreme Court and said that the whole system, the whole shebang here is unconstitutional. Um, the entire PTAB review they, system. Right. Yeah. They, their position was that patents are private property that can't be taken away by a government agency. Um, and that's something that only the courts uh, can do. Um, so, so you
0: can imagine here at the Law 360 offices that Matt, Ryan, and I were very excited about this case because it had the potential to upend this entire system.
3: Right? Uh, if yeah, if the Supreme Court had agreed that these uh, proceedings were unconstitutional, that I don't think there's any way around it. They would have go. They would have to go away. They're, the 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 patent office couldn't be taking away patents anymore,
0: but that's not what happened. What but did the court, that court is actually? Not design? what
3: happened. Uh, the Supreme Court, in a seven two decision written by Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, pretty flatly rejected all of the arguments that Oil States had presented, and held that patents. Uh, well, they didn't quite say that patents are not private property, which is what Oil States was arguing. They said they left that. To another day, which uh, I don't know. We'll love get that, love that classic hedge. Yeah. yeah. What they held was that the the act of granting a patent is a is a is a public right, um, and mm-hmm. as a public right, um, that it's subject to um, all of the uh, statutory uh, obligations under that right. So the patent, office grants you a patent. It says we have this proceeding where you can take it away. So it's it's all good. It's all. It's okay. All
0: well that all seems great guys great. so we just so they just, to, relief just, just, just here. To
3: clarify there was uh, there was a thing
1: called PTab invented a few years ago it reviews patents and uh, it's constitutional right. and so we're fine we have no more issues uh Matt thanks for coming in anyway <laughs> right? yes yeah,
0: so uh Matt's on the show though so <laughs> what <laughs> right. else happened on the same day
4: so if the first case dealt with whether the PTab reviews can exist there was a second case before the Supreme Court that dealt with how those PTAB reviews work. Mm -hmm.
0: And this one was pretty important. So tell us a little bit about how they worked before this case was brought.
4: So the PTAB has been operating under a system where it can essentially pick and choose which parts of a patent that it wants to review. Yeah.
0: And I mean, just for people that don't follow patents, oftentimes these challenges challenge many parts. It can be dozens. um, It can be hundreds.
4: Yeah. Right. So the board would um go through and pick and choose which arguments it felt were
1: which is like sort of more most central to deciding the case or, or i mean
3: more meritorious which okay. ones right. are more likely to, to prevail on
1: all right and people and, and 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 a company was challenging that uh that that approach in this case yeah exactly
4: they said if the board has to decide every Uh, part of the patent that we challenge.
1: All right. So those are the the sort of two disputed approaches. You can look at some of the parts of the patent or you got to look at the patent in full. Where did the high court come down on all this?
4: They came down on the side that if it's an all or nothing approach, that if the board is going to review a patent, it has to review all of the parts that are challenged. Okay.
0: so we can have these ones where it's a 100 different parts and now they have to review all of that.
4: Exactly. So what does that mean
1: now? Like, we're, we're here, it's like an all or nothing approach. I mean, it seems like if their job is to review patents, doesn't seem like that big of a deal to a non-patent expert like me. What's what's like kind of the legacy of this thing going forward now?
4: So the vast majority of, of patents that are challenged at the PTAB are involved in district court litigation. What this will do by having to fully grant or fully deny review, it's going to basically make it so that A lot of these validity challenges are taken care of in in one stop. It's going to limit of that piecemeal litigation, Mm -hmm. um, these validity disputes taking place at the PTAB and in district court simultaneously. Okay.
0: So, that actually sounds great. Are there downsides to this?
4: Well, um... Kind of depends on who
1: you ask, I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So,
4: from... Like I said, the the PTAB had defended this as a way to sort of streamline reviews. With these, if we're going to use this term, insubstantial challenges, um, being allowed to proceed through to the final decision, it's going to make more work for the board, presumably. Um, Also for the parties that are involved in the litigation Mm -hmm. or at the the review at the PTAB, thereby I'll be increasing the cost for them as well. Yeah,
0: so it sounds like it's going to get more expensive. It seems like things may slow down. And how much can PTAB slow down? Because... They have a window when they have to issue these decisions right
4: right so they are required to make a final decision on the validity of a patent within one year of agreement yeah, to one, review one. that patent mm-hmm. um so there are some ideas the p hasn't said up to this point really how it's going to handle this decision yeah i mean
1: it came out what, um, a, days ago they so. issued
4: some some guidance
0: well we could turn and have ryan maybe tell <laughs> us a little bit about that because just today i said ryan write a story about this guidance that just came out. So oh, there's guidance. Hot off the presses, guys. So we record this on Thursday. Ryan, do you have a, any beat on some of the guidance they maybe are going to follow for this?
3: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the guidance was about what they're going to do with proceedings that had already begun. Pen, yeah, pending. Sure. sure. Right. So they'd been doing this thing where they'd pick and choose. Caught midstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And now, now well, they they can't do that. In, right. Yeah. So basically, the guidance, it, it says that they can... Extend deadlines and take additional briefing and things like that, and uh, so they've got for the uh, the the full proceeding they've got to do it in a year. But there's also in the law a statute that says that for good cause they can extend it Uh-oh. by six months. That um, sounds
0: like something we may hear a lot more about.
3: Right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you can assume there were there were lots of reviews that were instituted just about a year ago. We're right. almost done. And now they've got a whole new Supreme Court regime to, to deal with. So, so guys,
0: knowing how much, and this isn't just a comment based on patent, but just covering the legal system in general, oftentimes when a court, for example, gets overburdened, they start issuing really cursory type uh, decisions and responses. Mm-hmm. Are we worried about that here with patents now?
4: Yeah. Um, <laughs> in short, yeah. So I guess there was a couple approaches that people have suggested the PTAB might do long-term, one being simply hire more judges, Sure. Um, the other one being these decisions to institute review typically are pretty detailed, Mm -hmm. um, and they can get lengthy, uh, 40, 50 pages. The idea is that in order to sort of adjust to this new workload, the PTAB might cut those down, those institution decisions down quite a bit, maybe to one word, um, (laughs) instituted or
0: Right. I mean, this is the thing we see because we talk about this um, often with even the federal circuit when they are deciding patent cases. Yeah, they will often do these rule 36 decisions. That's Mm -hmm. like a sentence.
1: Yeah. So Mm
0: -hmm. this may be the the institution at PTAB version of that.
1: I guess if you're a real budget nerd, you might also want to keep your eyes peeled if uh, the administration asks for more money for the PTAB in the next couple of whatever budget cycles. Right
3: um yeah i guess they might do that depends on how
1: i mean it's never really a sexy thing to ask money for i guess (laughs) yeah
3: i mean well the 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 office is in an unusual position because it doesn't really get money tax money it's funded by its own uh user fees fees, oh, yeah, fees and stuff yes. yeah so yeah I mean though it's more of a matter of they might have to allocate more money for judges if they right. decide that are really getting overworked by this well, anyway, so anyway, maybe yeah.
0: now if now is everyone's big time if you're listening and you have a science background and you want to be a judge at uh, PTAP, they may be stop you know staffing up
1: yeah yeah or if you want to or if you're not yet a patent lawyer and want to be one it figures <laughs> to become a lot more busy
0: yeah well we love that here at law 360 because IP is one of our greatest sections. It's, so. it's the
1: flagship wire. I don't know if people know that about Law 360. <laughs> it began as a patent uh, journal. It did. And, do other and things, um,
0: so. me and the guys will be writing much more about this. Thanks for coming on the show to explain everything.
1: Sure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Amber, it was a jam-packed show. Yeah, lots of high court goodness. We don't quite have time for a proper sort of offbeat segment, but I um, just want to say it was really fun doing the show. Uh,
0: Alex, you teased something up top that I'd yeah. really. Well, like that's to what hear. I'm saying.
1: I, I think this good place as any. We don't have an offbeat segment for you, but we got a very special guest to uh, play us out here.
0: Of people to thank for today's show, including our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests Ryan Davis and Matt Bultman, contributing reporters Nicole Norea and Jimmy Hoover. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner, Little Glass Men, and Bill Donahue. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, check out our website at law 360com podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks and join us again next week.